This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. It has been six months since the city's Department of Planning and Permitting began enforcing a new law to rein in illegal short-term vacation rentals. It's gotten help from neighbors who have filed online complaints to help the city ferret out the scoff laws. Since December, 423 complaints have been filed online. DPP has assessed 293 $2,000 in fines, but so far has collected just 1000 Of those complaints, the city has cited 358 violators. DPP Director Kathy Sokugawa declined an interview about the progress to date, wanting to wait until draft rules on legal bed and breakfast permits are rolled out for review later this summer. So we asked for a list of the violators and reached out to the group Save Oahu's Neighborhoods for Reaction. Executive Director Larry Bartley says he and his members are encouraged and heartened by the city's efforts. The results are really multifold. One is we anecdotally know that a lot of operators have shut down. They've stopped operating uh, even before they were cited or even warned, right, just from fear of the enforcement, which is a positive thing. Um, and, but we see here, I mean, dozens of, uh, of um, non-compliant issues uh, uh, that the city has sent people letters on and so forth and started enforcement proceedings, and a lot of them have decided to stop operating also. So that's all very positive. Every house, you know, in every room that becomes available, that's taken out of that market, becomes available for other purposes, such as rentals for local people and so forth. So that was really our the main thrust of our effort was to get housing out of the vacation market back into local use. And uh, so we see a lot of that happening. There are still offenders, for sure. And they come in various levels of, uh, you know, of, of uh, resistance, right, shall we say, that some are you know, already resorting to refusing service on documents and so forth, or list or, or listing their properties only at night when they, they think the DPP is not watching, and then take them off during the day when the DPP is watching the advertisements. Some are listed only on foreign language websites, and some have gone back to the way it was before there was Airbnb and uh, VRBO back to the era the mid 2000s like 2005 to 2010 in that era before those big organizations took over they listed independently through real estate agencies through travel agents and so forth so some have gone back to that also they've dropped the airbnb or vrbo uh, umbrella Maybe using craigslist umbrella. Or online. yeah exactly so we see them there they'll be the hardest to catch but i think uh, you know once the forest clears and we get a lot of people out of the business and the city will be able to concentrate on those remaining and spend more effort more concentrated effort on the ones who are the, the very egregious violators because you you know you can go on these websites and and these folks are are claiming oh i've you know been operating since you know whatever year 2000 and so you know they're they've been doing this they admit it Right. Oh, we, you know, we went to council hearing after council hearing and dozens of people stood right before the city council, the mayor and everyone said, you know, I operate illegally and there's no problem. So they don't consider themselves illegal. Most of them, they know they are, but they don't think of it that way. So they think it's, you know, the old Texas model. It's my property. I'll do what the hell I want. I'll do what I want with it. Right. <laughs> so, but that's why we have zoning laws and that's why we have residential zoning and apartment zoning is for people to live in, not for lodging for guests. I know the Department of Planning and Permitting is in the process of coming up with draft rules, bed and breakfast permits that they plan to start issuing later this year. I don't think the current enforcement effort is really related to the new permitting process. I I think they're totally separate issues. And that the people who are going to try and get permits and so forth will probably be very legal operators. You know, once they get a permit and satisfy all the requirements, I don't really have a concern about them. It's it's what's remaining out there. The people who will continue to operate without without permits, without non-conforming use certificate. That's a grandfathering that went in 1990. They'll continue to operate until somebody really forces them out of business. Right, but I I think the city has has told me that uh, you know they'll be looking to see if folks have any outstanding uh, notices or violations. You know, when they go to apply to try and get a legitimate. A bed and breakfast permit. That may be. Uh, that may be. Uh, and so that would be a factor. The city would make that rule, though, and make that decision. I don't think that's in the law. I'm not sure. Maybe you know, but I don't know. Well, I think I think they're just still drafting it. So no, I'm, you're talking about the rules, but the law that passed uh, Bill 89 to pass last summer. Uh, I don't think that specifically is in the rules about they can't apply for a permit if they've ever received a notice of uh, violation. But maybe that's something the city will put in the rules, and I'm not privy to that yet. And so uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, ask by the city for folks to file complaints if they see scoff laws in the neighborhood? 
Yeah, I think it's great. They've set up a set of rules or, or guidelines about how to do that, and that you can get that. I, but yeah, you can you can uh, file a complaint even anonymously with the city and, and tell them what's going on, and then they will investigate. And then what are your thoughts? I mean, given that that this is a first start for the city with this new new law in the books, but. We have other counties that are kind of ahead of us, ahead of the game, and, and have actually uh, harsher penalties. I'm not really too much aware of what's going on in Maui and Kauai. I know uh, the Big Island. I worked with the people over there on Bill 108 that passed last year, and um, that was unfortunate, I thought. But, uh, you know, and they worked to try to prevent it, but it passed. So they are going to open up a lot of permitting on the Big Island, and I think they'll regret that eventually. Is there anything that you think that we could learn from the other counties about how they're approaching this problem? I think the uh, the directors and the council members could work together better to come up with uh, you know some more uniform legislation. But then we really don't want to, from Oahu, we really don't want to dictate what the people in the other counties want to do. If, I mean, if they are happy with vacation rentals in their neighborhoods, then that's really is their that's their issue and that's their business. So, but is there but I mean, as far as as far as those who want to fight it, we're always willing to work together with them. No, yeah. but is there anything you think that that RDPP can learn? From the other counties, from their uh, on enforcement their history, yeah, and I think they have. I think they've talked to each other about that, and some of that went into the new law that passed Bill eighty nine, you know, last summer. So you're encouraged, though, by by what you've seen so far. Yes, definitely. Okay. Anything else you want to add, just about the state of our neighborhoods at this point? Well, uh, anecdotally, we get a lot of reports about, like I said earlier, we get a lot of reports about people uh, who've stopped doing it, and more, and and. And I'm not sure how that's reflected in housing prices and rental prices, but I hear they've come down a little bit. So if that is the only thing that impacts that, I don't know. But I know there's a lot of other pressures on the housing market, like the the military housing allowance and so forth. So we never pretended that that the vacation rental issue was the only thing forcing, you know, housing prices way up. But it was one factor. And we hope to remove that factor and bring those prices down and bring down the rents, especially for people who can't afford to buy anyway, but can't find a place to live. We know in, in, in uh, shoreline areas, like especially North Shore and Kailua, businesses have actually quit because they couldn't get help because the, the help could not live in those communities. They would have to travel. And I know of a couple instances in Kailua and one on the North Shore where that happened, where they just closed up, they couldn't get help, and the owners of business, small businesses couldn't run the thing 24, you know, every day of the week by themselves. So they just they closed up. And, and, uh, and so if more affordable rentals exactly. for our local people turn up in those neighborhoods, it, that would help the small businesses? Right. Anything else? Any final thoughts on just where we're at six months after the crackdown? I'm really happy that we got Bill 89 passed. I'm glad the city is working on enforcing it. And, um, you know, we really, we're in a kind of a wait-and-see mode right now. We want to see what the city does, how effective it is. And uh, we certainly don't want to be biting at their heels at this point in time. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, be more supportive and make sure they're doing everything they can. And then we'll look at it in a few months and, and see how it's going and see if there's any fine-tuning required legislatively, I mean. Okay. Yeah. Larry Bartley, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Larry Bartley, executive director of Save Oahu's Neighborhoods, talking about the city's efforts to rein in illegal transient vacation rentals. The group was formed 15 years ago in an effort to preserve residentially zoned areas and help with the problem of short-term rentals and the effect on rental prices, homelessness, loss of community, and crime. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programs. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Barbara Marks Hubbard, author of Birth 2012 and Beyond. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about humanity's great shift to the age of conscious evolution. Sunday at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at the long-storied history of Spanish immigration and culture in the Hawaiian Islands. While historians believe that many enterprising Spanish adventurers came to Hawaii aboard whaling ships, the first ever Spaniard to visit Hawaii shores is believed to be Francisco de Paula Marin, often called Manini. This jack-of-all-trades became a confidant of Kamehameha I and is credited with the first documented introductions of pineapple, mango, and orange crops in Hawaii. More officially, Spanish immigrants began to make the long journey to Hawaii in 1907, just as Portuguese immigration to the islands began to trend downward. These immigrants were mostly laborers seeking work in Hawaii's sugarcane plantations, and they came mostly from the province of Malaga via steamship. The first of these ships arrived on April 26th, 1897, after 47 days at sea. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this first steamship to bring Spanish immigrants to Hawaii? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. The 2020 census count officially kicks off on April 1st, but months of work has been leading up to this moment. As you know, it's constitutionally mandated, but it also determines our political representation in Congress, federal spending, and infrastructure development. A study by George Washington University showed that Hawaii received $3.7 billion in fiscal year 2016, or $2,578 per person. Most was uh, for Medicaid and nutrition programs, which accounted for 64% of that money. Despite this, Hawaii's response rates have been low. In 2010, the state's response rate was 68%, 54% on the neighbor islands. That is below the national average of 74%. Alex Wong is a planner with Kauai County and is part of the county census a complete count committee, he spoke about census challenges at a, a recent county council meeting in January. Um, this is just a quick list of challenges that we face uh, being a small state um, in the middle of the Pacific. And I, I included this information here be, just to put things in perspective. Out of all 50 states, uh, 26 states have actually allocated their own state tax dollars towards their public outreach and education in order to get their residents to fill out their census surveys. State of California, commonly cite, being a large state, they have allocated about $187 million for their census outreach effort, which equates to about $4.73 per resident. Relative to that, the state of Hawaii has allocated just a little over 700000 which equates to approximately $0.53 cents per resident in the state of Hawaii. So for us, it's, it's much more of a grassroots, ground-up movement. We, we really have our own fate in our own hands at this point. And it's, it's, it's all about effort, and it's about community, and it's about um, how we can communicate the importance of this movement and this effort, not just for the state of Hawaii, but for our island of Kauai. Melissa Kaava is the Hawaii Area Manager for the U.S. Census Bureau. She talked to the Conversations' Jason Ubai about recruitment enumerators, also known as census takers. So we need approximately 2,000 enumerators in the state of Hawaii and 500,000 nationwide. How many do we have uh, lined up right now uh, for Hawaii? We have approximately 300 on staff uh, now 
And that includes enumerators, clerks, recruiting assistants, office operations supervisors, and census field supervisors. Is there a pipeline of people waiting and have applied and you just haven't hired them because they aren't going yet, or are you actively recruiting folks right now? So we're both actively recruiting still, and we are actively selecting people for jobs. So the, the process has been ongoing for about a year now, and I realize there's a lot of people who have applied and they haven't received the call yet, but hopefully we do get to them. The, we hire based on workload and you know where the work is currently. Where do you see the most need right now? Uh, so we're actively recruiting for what we call non-response follow-up, and this is going to happen in June and July. Um, and it's going to be basically in all areas of the state of Hawaii. You know, it's normally in our what we call our low-response areas um, where people don't self-respond. And so instead, we need to send an enumerator to the door to assist um, that respondent, you know, with completing the questionnaire. Uh, some of the areas that we are... Um, short in, I would say maybe the county of Maui and the island of Kauai. It seems like our, you know, our recruiting numbers are a little lower there. Um, and parts of Honolulu. Oh, and definitely all of our um, military housing areas on all islands. You know, primarily Oahu. We have a relationship with, um, you know, our military point of contact here, and we make arrangements um, to enumerate on. Um, you know, some of the local housing that they have here in the state. What are the major challenges uh, to trying to staff um, folks around the state here in Hawaii? Uh, definitely the low unemployment rate. And then, again, probably recruiting applicants with uh, language skills and um, certain areas of geography. But the low unemployment rate, you know, has made it really challenging for us. I understand nationwide that it's been harder the higher this year than in previous census. Uh, is that correct uh, for Hawaii? Oh, for sure. Ten years ago, you remember there was a downturn in the economy, and, um, you know, we had a flood of applications come in, and this time, you know, just not the same economy that we're in now um, as, as we were back then. I understand that the pay rate went up uh, from 21 to $24. Was this uh, in response to trying to uh, recruit and incentivize more workers? Absolutely. You know, the Census Bureau, we want to remain competitive in pay with um, other employers and attract the best candidates. And with the low unemployment rate um, and us not meeting our, you know, not seeing the progress in recruiting like we would have wanted to, um, they decided to raise the pay scale, raise the, the rates here in Hawaii. The enumerator, it is across the board, $24 an hour, and um, basically... They look at the local labor market, the cost of living, to determine, you know, and again, to stay competitive with other employers. What skills do people need to to do this work, to, to be an enumerator? Uh, actually, all they need is to be 18 years of age, um, no particular skill set. A car and a driver's license is handy, you know, when it comes to maybe traveling, um, to different areas, but ideally we do want to hire people who live in their own communities um, because they know that community best. Uh, we do have, you know, some office jobs as well, so some basic computer skills um, might come in handy. But to be an enumerator, no particular skill. It's a great first-time job, you know, for college students, and, and it, we see a lot of retirees or semi-retirees um, come back and work, join our workforce. Um, so we have a wide uh, range of employee types. Beginning on March 12th, uh, the public will receive an invitation to participate in the 2020 census, and they'll have an opportunity to either fill it out online, uh, they could fill out a paper version, or call um, our toll-free number um, to complete their 2020 census form. If you don't hear a response from them, uh, when will... Uh, enumerators come out to kind of do the door, uh, door-to-door type of uh, counting. Right. Um, beginning in uh, June and July, you know, we are looking for people who are available evenings and weekends when people are home to be interviewed. Um, so 
you know, it's possible second time job, second job for folks who might be interested in, you know, serving their community and doing something good for Hawaii, making sure that we count everyone. Okay. Well, uh, I know the coronavirus has been in the news. Has that been a concern for any applicants? I have not heard the concern from from applicants. I'm sure, you know, it will be. Um, But here at the Census Bureau, you know, the safety of the public and our employees is our priority one. Um, And we are working with national health authorities, including, you know, the CDC, um, as well as state and local health departments, to ensure that all of their guidance is incorporated into our operations. The deadline uh, to apply, I saw, was February 20th, but you're still recruiting, and how long people can apply now, but is there a cutoff date for you guys? Um, No, no cutoff date at the moment. Um, We are definitely actively recruiting. Um, We're continuously making selections for enumerators now, and so I strongly suggest that if, you know, there's anyone um, listening who's interested, to apply now um, since we are starting up our selections for enumerators um, for the largest operation. Um, we're looking at selecting approximately almost close to 2,800 um, you know, enumerators for this big summertime operation. I certainly know that uh, you're going to go through the applications, and uh, but you only have 300 now, so trying to reach uh, your goal of having 2,800 enumerators. Uh, what would you say to folks who might be interested? Why is this an important thing for them to, uh, to apply for? It's important, one, you know, to serve our community and the state of Hawaii in terms of um, making sure that, uh, like I said earlier, everyone is, is counted and represented. Um, and then to work for the Census Bureau. I mean, it's a once every 10 year opportunity to be a part of something, you know, extraordinary and um, such a big task um, that we have ahead of us. And to participate in that, I think it could be a real sense of accomplishment for anyone who, you know, participates. And and then again, they get paid at the same time. And we're paying $24 an hour. I think it's a, it's a good wage. Yeah, and it's a fun job. <laughs> and that was Melissa Kaaba, the area manager for the U.S. Census Bureau. If you're interested in applying, you can go to census2020.gov or go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about a bill to limit side action jobs for state and county lawmakers. Uh, reporter Blaze Level joins us this morning for our reality check. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. So, yeah, I was uh, interested in your story because, you know, quite honestly, in previous stories um, around town, you only heard about all the flack that Mayor Caldwell has been getting about the bank job that he holds. But you uh, have a lot more lawmakers that's right. You know, uh, Caldwell caught a lot of the flack, and we've kind of nicknamed this the Kirk Caldwell Bill, but yeah. it could very well be the Mayor Derek Kawakami Bill. Mm. Uh, maybe soon it could be the Keith Amamiya Bill because uh, the bill would ban any mayor or future governor from having an outside job from whatever their executive office is. And Scott Psyche, the House Speaker who introduced the bill, says that the idea is to, you know, make sure these guys are keeping their focus on their jobs, which is running the county, or in the governor's case, running the state. Now, uh, Psyche tried to introduce this before, right? Or he, he did introduce it before. He has, and he says that it's in response to Donald Trump's whole emoluments thing, but it also came up around the same time there was a lot of controversy with Kirk Caldwell's bank job, and he's tried for at least three or four legislative sessions not to get it passed, and usually it doesn't go too far, but with the Senate vote yesterday, um, the bill now goes back to the House for consideration, and if the House agrees to whatever the Senate's done with the bill, they could actually send it straight to the governor, and then Ige would have, I think, 60 days to either sign or veto the bill. So who else c- uh, could be affected? I mean, we have lots of people running for mayor. <laughs> there- Definitely, there could be lots of people, and that's one of the you know timely things about this story. It's an election season. You know, there's Keith Amemia. He's a VP at Island Holdings. 
Um, another candidate is even Chun James, a real estate broker. I called her yesterday and she said that she's willing to give up that business completely if, you know, if she's elected. A few other Hoy County candidates like Bob Fitzgerald, who is a uh, Hilton executive, and also Tante Urban, who owns a restaurant on Maui. Now, while those candidates who are elected, who are running for election this year, they won't have to give up their jobs just yet. The bill would go into effect in 2022. However, after that date, they'd have 60 days to um, either give up their outside positions or to turn over their business or roll it into what's called a blind trust, which basically means that someone else holds the interest for the company and they're not allowed to touch it. Do you know if any of these candidates uh, who are, would be potentially affected you know, have submitted testimony about this? Just curious. <laughs> no, n- not much. But a few I spoke to yesterday all said that they support the bill. And they're in agreement with Scott Psyche that if you're a mayor or if you're a governor, all your attention should be on that one job that you do have. And speaking of governor... The bill goes effect in 2022, and that is when we're going to elect a new governor. And that means it would affect Caldwell, um, who terms out this year. But it would also affect Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, who we already know will probably make a gubernatorial run that year. He pulled in at least $275,000 from three different positions in the medical field that he holds beside his LG position. So... Yeah, there there could be effects both this year and going forward. I mean, those are kind of stunning numbers. Um, That's much more than what Mayor Caldwell makes. Definitely. In fact, it's way more than what he he makes in his government position. And for a lot of these um, positions like Green and Caldwell's, they do make more money from their outside gigs than they do working for um, the state or county. And that's one of the reasons why a few people I spoke to yesterday think this bill is so important. It's because they don't, even if there's no kind of impropriety going on and the elected official is able to keep their business away from their public life, it still gives the appearance that there's, you know, maybe something going on. And a lot of people don't want our public officials to have that appearance. Right. But you, you kind of have to wonder, you know, are there people that would vote for this because they have a personal grudge against somebody running for office? If it was maybe one of uh, uh, former Senator Green's uh, colleagues there or, or what? It just uh, it's interesting, interesting uh, uh, situation that we find ourselves in with all these potential candidates. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. And one of the criticisms of the bill actually is that, you know, the legislature is proposing this, but yet. The legislators can hold outside positions, and also there's an argument that they don't work full-time. They actually work part-time, unlike the mayors and governors. But, you know, an argument could be made that lawmakers also should be beholden to these rules and also should have their, you know, main focus on their office and representing their districts. Right. So what's good for uh, one lawmaker should be good for the next, right? Exactly. (laughs) All right. Okay. Thank you so much, Blaze. Thank you. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read the full story and get all those names, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors The Rice Partnership and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Washington State has reported over two dozen cases of COVID-19. I'm Ira Flato on the next Science Friday, how scientists have sequenced the genome of the virus from two of the patients and how the genetic material is being used to track and treat the illness as cases grow globally. What it all means for you on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. 
we have been receiving more feedback on our continuing coverage on the state of vacation rentals. Amy from Maui sent us this email. She says, uh, I'm a 20-year resident on Maui who owns and operates a permitted short-term rental home. In the seven years, I've had zero complaints from my neighbors and support my business 100% and have, who have testified in writing to the county. Maui County Planner Michelle McLean failed to mention that these short-term rental home permits do not transfer to a new owner, hence placing no added value to our properties. Additionally, if a property is purchased or owned in Maui, an owner can't submit for a permit for five years. These permitted properties are not the cause of the high cost of living, but rather networks of local people creating local business opportunities. These permitted properties are not the properties receiving complaints or they would not be able to operate anymore because of our strict regulation. Maui County should be preserving small businesses that support the local economy, not creating economic destruction for folks who have followed every rule paid the appropriate short-term rental home taxes, and continue to support our local businesses. We also received a call from a Maui resident who was pretty upset about the proposed vacation rental ban. My name is Michael Best. I'm an elderly, disabled, destitute, homeless vet living on Maui. And I think it's patently absurd that they're banning all vacation, all short-term vacation rentals. That's ridiculous. If they want to control the circumstances, all they have to do is have enforceable regulation and licensure of the various businesses, and they would be subject to inspection and possible closure if they receive enough complaints from the community they are within. Otherwise, it's just plain foolishness to to ban all short-term vacation rentals. I mean, that's what Hawaii's economy runs on, folks. It's the illegal stuff. The people that got connections or just managed to get away with it, they're the ones that are ruining it for everybody. So simple registration, licensure, and inspection would be the simplest way to continue with a healthy, the healthiest economy that you can manage. Hey, thanks for the feedback. We do like to hear from you. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or just call our talkback line, 792-8217. When you give to Hawaii Public Radio, you can do so knowing that your contribution will be used wisely. That's because we have been awarded a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, America's largest independent evaluator of nonprofits. And we've earned that rating eight years in a row. It tells you that your donation goes toward the things that matter most. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. A recent study by Child and Family Services on the subject of sex trafficking in Hawaii provided a startling look at just how complex and prevalent the issue is here in the islands. While lawmakers are debating a number of bills in this year's legislative session that hope to address the issue, some are looking beyond Hawaii for the best ways to confront trafficking. Sweden has been a global leader in addressing sex trafficking, and many advocates for the issue praise what has been called the Swedish model. It largely involves criminalizing the buyers who enable trafficking crimes rather than the victims who have been forced to take part. A vocal champion of this approach has been Per Anders Sunison. He was a Swedish ambassador at large for combating trafficking. He's in Hawaii this week discussing potential solutions with state lawmakers. He sat down with the conversation's Harrison Patino. In Sweden, we have a very strong focus on reducing demand. I would say that most people would agree that we would have no human trafficking if there was no demand for women in prostitution. So that's our strong focus. 
One of the critical issues here in Hawaii is that there tends to be a lapse uh, in resources for victims transitioning from youth to adulthood and how we address them, viewing them as victims versus perpetrators. Can the same be said in Sweden? No, in Sweden uh, we have a, a law since 1st of January 1999 that only criminalized the buyer of sex but not the person who is in prostitution or being prostituted. We had a strong focus on this for very many years and we are advocating for um, other countries also to focus on uh, reducing demand to understand that those who end up in prostitution, they are not criminals, they are actually victims. And, you know, I, I travel all over the globe and having these discussions and what's common for every country is that it's the most marginalized, the most vulnerable people who end up in prostitution. Now you mentioned you travel across the globe. What are some of the key issues you see culture to culture? I'd say that the big discussion right now globally is, is prostitution uh, a job like any other job? Or is it is it actually exploitation of vulnerable people? And there is a strong pro-sex lobby arguing that uh, prostitution should be considered a job. But for my government and for many other governments, that's not acceptable. We know that it's the vulnerable people who end up being prostituted. Well, there's this idea that regulation removes danger. Do you mm -hmm. agree with that? No, I don't. We can uh, compare with our neighboring country, Germany, who 2002 decided to regulate prostitution market, illegal brothels, pimping, and so on. The results in Germany today, you have 400,000 women in prostitution, 1.2 million purchases of sex every 24 hours. The demand increased with 30%. And, and this is important, the women working at the German brothels, they are not German women who decided this is the profession I want for myself. They are 98% are women from developing countries like Albania, Romania, and so on. So often for the people who are in this line of work, maybe they've been forced to do it, maybe they've been left with no other option. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of key institutional problems that led them there in the first place, whether they're fleeing trauma or they've had a history of sexual abuse. How has Sweden addressed those institutional issues like sex abuse, domestic abuse? It's very important to say that we're not perfect in any way. We have problems with uh, domestic violence, with prostitution, and so on. But we have a strong focus on gender equality. We have uh, the issue in the curriculum in school, uh, strong focus on this from the police force, and ongoing political discussion regarding how to best combat these problems in society, and a strong focus also on, you know, on the perpetrator and to give help to those who end up being uh, the victims. Shifting the focus from victim blaming, let's yes. say, to focusing on the people who are actually enabling these crimes in right. the first place. Right. So from what I understand, you've only been here for a couple of days, but yes. what have been some of the key takeaways that you've seen here so far? I had very good discussions and a great interest from lawmakers and others to discuss what are the best practices to combat human trafficking and human trafficking for sexual exploitation. And it's always good to meet. We can learn from each other. One system may not be possible to adopt right away in a different context and so on. And it's a global problem and we need to talk and uh, compare notes. Sweden has a very good reputation as a leader in gender equality and specifically in combating sex trafficking. What are some of the lessons that you want to convey, especially here in Hawaii? Well, if you want to create a society where men and women have the same rights, where you honor human rights, for me and for my government, it's not acceptable to, to have a position where some people can be bought for money. I don't think that's the situation uh, anyone is, I don't think, I haven't heard that in, on, in Hawaii that people are arguing that prostitution should be decriminalized fully, but um, going that way would be uh, a, a big problem for human rights. Like I said, I travel all over and I have this in, in, in mind, the woman I met in, in Colombia who was in prostitution. And in Colombia, prostitution is not legal, not buying, not selling. And she said, being in prostitution in Colombia is awful, but I am scared to death that my government would legalize it. Because if they do, women like myself and my, my daughters, they will never be offered anything else than to stay in prostitution to make a living. There are often people who put forth the argument that if there's an illicit service, people are going to try and seek it anyway. And even if you regulate it or not, people are going to seek out these services mm -hmm. that come at the cost of other people. Well, I think that's uh, that's where the Swedish, uh, Swedish experience is very interesting for other countries. Because uh, since we introduced this law back in uh, 1999, the demand has reduced a lot. 
it's been a real change of mindset. Very few people think it's okay to buy sex. So both the Swedish police uh, and international police like Interpol put in the reports that Sweden is almost a dead market for human trafficking for sexual exploitation because there's just not enough demand for women in prostitution. So in opposite to Germany, we have almost no human trafficking for sexual exploitation. But in Germany, this is flourishing. Is that the result of a very concerted educational effort to teach citizens, teach men that this sort of thing is not okay? I would say so. First of all, very important that the government send a signal, no, it's not okay to buy access to someone's body. Secondly, to have the issue of gender equality, the issue of human rights in the curriculum in schools. Three, to do awareness campaigns to let everyone know that prostitution is not pretty woman. It's exploitation of the most vulnerable people. It's sustaining organized crime. Uh, Before we leave, are there any key takeaways that you want to get across? This is a global problem and we need to work together with it, uh, against it. And um, we are positive that are we ever going to be successful combating human trafficking, we need to address demand. Because if there's no demand for cheap labor or for women in prostitution, there will be no human trafficking. That was Per Anders Sunesen, the Swedish ambassador-at-large for combating trafficking. He joined us in studio to talk with producer Harrison Patino about sex trafficking. In today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at the Spanish connection here in Hawaii. While the islands first started welcoming Spanish labor, uh, sugar laborers to its shores in 1907, Spanish influence in the islands was felt far before that. The notable Spanish adventurer and horticulturist Francisco de Paula Marin found his way into the royal court of Kamehameha I, impacting agriculture and trade within the kingdom. Hawaii saw the majority of Spanish immigration between the years of 1907 and 1913, where nearly 10,000 Spaniards settled in the islands to take part in the sugar trade. While the majority of Portuguese immigrants before them came to Hawaii via wooden sailing ships, all of the Spaniards who traveled to the islands did so aboard comparatively larger passenger steamships. The first of these ships bore the name Heliopolis and brought it uh, over brought over 2,000 Spaniards to the territory of Hawaii. Uh, we had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Tiny Desk Concert, Big Talent. We talk live today with arts and culture reporter Noe Tanegawa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen any of these Tiny Desk Concerts? Yes, they're so cute. Yeah, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, and they turned out to be this really powerful launch pad for musicians, especially musicians that maybe might have thought they never had a shot previously. I mean, the whole thing is kind of stewarded by Bob Boylan, who's the host of All Songs Considered. We've got that coming up later today here on this uh, station here. He curates a series, and it has become a major way for millions of people to find new artists. And the big deal today is that finally a Hawaii musician has made the cut. Ukulele virtuoso Taimane. She's the first Hawaii artist to perform behind this so-called tiny desk. <laughs> and this is her original, E Ala E. You can hear her ukulele work there, right? Beautiful. And uh, she played in this concert with um, percussionist Jonathan Haro. Ramiro Marziani was guitarist there. Melissa Beethoven played violin and background vocals. And Leo, a Polynesian dancer from Tahiti, was there. This is Taimani's hit, Fire.
it closes the set out with a new original. So we're just looking forward to this. Very dreamy. I, I love know. it. She's got so many different flavors, you know, to her music, really. And she brought a dancer behind the, that little tiny desk this time. But, uh, you know, it's not that tiny. <laughs> Chick Corea's grand piano has fit back there before. Muka Pazza's played there. They have 23 people, you know. So the definition of tiny has been debated in this context, but no one desi- uh, you know, denies the impact that getting onto this program can have. Uh, Taimane did bring back some behind-the-scenes scoops for us. She says it is Bob Boylan's real actual desk, and it ends up about 50 or 60 NPR employees just kind of come on in and gather around in front of this desk. Can you go? Pretty much forget about it, unless you're an NPR employee or can get one of them to invite you as their guest. And Taimane says the whole scene is really youthful. People seem happy to be working at NPR. And she said in the bathroom, there are little post-its with messages like, go girl, (laughs) you can do this. Nice. (laughs) Cute, right? Taimane's Tiny Desk Concert drops on YouTube next Friday, March 13th, and it's available on NPR.org today. Now, this tiny desk thing is a real deal. They've recorded more than 900 artists at this point. And you might wonder, how did Taimane get on? Well, she was invited after her performance at South by Southwest last year. But the annual tiny desk contest is on right now. And that's a chance to snag a tiny desk concert yourself. The deadline's the end of the month, so I thought maybe we could listen to some of the past winners. You know, you get a little little idea of this. There is a panel of judges, but they're led by Bob Boylan, that host of All Songs Considered. Now, people contort themselves trying to figure out what his taste is, but when you ask what he's looking for, Boylan says simply, singularity, something only you can do. So, hey, check out this Tiny Desk concert winner from 2018, Naya Izumi, guitarist and singer-songwriter from Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, he uh, got a Sony Masterworks contract the very next year. Wow. What a guy. And his entry video is online, too. You want to see a nervous person. I tell you, it is so cute. Really, Catherine, it's great. Now, the 2019 winner had made it to the final rounds in a previous contest. So they already kind of knew about him there. Imagine the serious listening that's done if someone like Quinn Christofferson can edge out, I mean, way over 6,000 other contestants. This is two guys from Alaska. Quinn Christofferson. Ooh, is feeding your baby. It's not my business. I Can you imagine a couple of guys in Alaska, you know, they, hey, we do this, well, let's record it, let's send it in. I mean, there is a lot of really serious listening going on here, and that's what people re- rely on this um, this whole operation for, you know? It's a great launching pad. Yeah, they discovered different kinds of musicians. Now, the most popular Tiny Desk video has gotten way over 45 million views. It is Anderson Pack and the Free Nationals. They were recorded back in 2016. Gotta watch his entire video. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Taiman is feeling the momentum now too. And do you really want to know how it happened for her? Because yeah. it was not like just, you know, how everybody thinks you're an overnight success. <laughs> well, Taimani's been kicking around Honolulu and touring for years, right? I mean, she was a child star, right? But 
she's been putting in the time. She's gotten her 10,000 hours, let me tell you. She went from playing covers of favorite songs and lots of Hawaiian numbers. And um, then she kind of moved into the flamenco repertoire. She just kills with the habanera from Carmen. It's one of her signature numbers there. And then she started writing. She now has a body of original songs, and she created a fully staged um, theater performance with dancers and everything at one point. Then it seemed like about four years ago, maybe, I think about that, she teamed up with promoter Mark Tyrone, T-Rex Productions. He is relentless. He's also an attorney. He let everybody here and in the industry know when Taimane went to South by last year. He made sure somebody from Tiny Desk saw her. It was Boylan himself. And that's how the seed was planted. Wow. So a lot of artists from Hawaii wonder how it's done. It's not, you know, it's it's no mystery. It's just a lot of work. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, so it's a little bit of a gimmick, right? Uh, it's kind of like a, a karaoke uh, in the car, right? <laughs> but, you know, you figure, okay, 50 people and around this tiny desk. You know, we have the Atherton here. And that's we like could 75. do it to ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, the talent is, is uh, that we have here is just phenomenal. We have Taimani. I mean, come on. Exactly. So the, no, the door's open. Yeah. See who else can walk through. By the way, the contest deadline is March 30, 30th. Okay. All right. You listen up, okay, <laughs> and, and enter. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Noe. Thanks, Catherine. That was HBR's Noe Tanigawa taking a look at the Tiny Desk concert platform to hear Taimani Gardner. Check out that concert. That's it for this week. Coming up next week, the Sandwich Isle saga, Untangling a Web. Have an issue that you want us to cover? Leave us a comment on our talkback line. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. Before email instead, send a talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We are on social media. Look for The Conversation, HPR on Facebook, and HI Conversation on Twitter. This show and previous shows are all archived on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation page, folks. This program produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. Backyard Quiz, thanks to John DeMello and Mahalo to Gypsy 808 for recording our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.